0: ACCOUNT OF A VAMPIRE We have just had in this part of Hungary a scene of vampirism, which is duly attested by two officers of the tribunal of Belgrade, who went down to the places specified, and by an officer of the emperor's troops at Graditz, who was an ocular witness of the proceedings. In the beginning of September there died in the village of Kifciloa, three leagues from Graditz an old man who was 62 years of age. Three days after he had been buried, he appeared in the night to his son and asked him for something to eat. The son having given him something, he ate and disappeared. The next day the son recounted to his neighbors what had happened. That night the father did not appear, but the following night he showed himself and asked for something to eat. They know not whether the son gave him anything or not, but the next day he was found dead in his bed. On the same day, five or six persons fell suddenly ill in the village and died one after the other in a few days. The officer or bailiff of the place, when informed of what had happened, sent an account of it to the tribunal of Belgrade, which dispatched to the village two of these officers and an executioner to examine the affair. The imperial officer from whom we have this account repaired thither from Graditz to be witness of a circumstance which he had so often heard spoken of. They opened the graves of those who had been dead six weeks. When they came to that of the old man, they found him with his eyes open, having a fine color, with natural respiration, nevertheless motionless as the dead. Whence they concluded that he was most evidently a vampire. The executioner drove a stake into his heart. They then raised the pile and reduced the corpse to ashes. No mark of vampirism was found either on the corpse or the sun, or on the others. Thanks be to God, we are by no means credulous. We avow that all the light which physics can throw on this fact discovers none of the causes of it. Nevertheless, we cannot refuse to believe that to be true which is juridically attested, and by persons of probity. The End Dead Persons in Hungary Who Suck the Blood of the Living About fifteen years ago, a soldier who was billeted at the house of a Hadamangé peasant on the frontiers of Hungary, as he was one day sitting at table near his host, the master of the house saw a person he did not know come in and sit down to table also with them. The master of the house was strangely frightened at this, as were the rest of the company. The soldier knew not what to think of it, being ignorant of the matter in question. But the master of the house being dead the very next day, the soldier inquired what it meant. They told him that it was the body of the father of his host, who had been dead and buried for ten years, which had thus come to sit down next to him, and had announced and caused his death. The soldier informed the regiment of it in the first place, and the regiment gave notice of it to the general officers, who commissioned the Count de Gabara. Captain of the Regiment of Allendetti Infantry, to make information concerning this circumstance. Having gone to the place with some other officers, a surgeon, and an auditor, they heard the depositions of all the people belonging to the house, who attested unanimously that the ghost was the father of the master of the house, and that all the soldier had said and reported was the exact truth, which was confirmed by all the inhabitants of the village. In consequence of this, the corpse of this specter was exhumed and found to be like that of a man who had just expired and his blood like that of a living man. The Count de Gabara had his head cut off and caused him to be laid again in his tomb. He also took information concerning other similar ghosts, amongst others, of a man dead more than thirty years who had come back three times to his house at mealtime the first time he had sucked the blood from the neck of his own brother, the second time from one of his sons, and the third from one of the servants in the house, and all three died of it instantly and on the spot. Upon this deposition the commissary had this man taken out of his grave, and finding that like the first the blood was in a fluid state, like that of a living person, he ordered them to run a large nail into his temple, and they lay him again in the grave. He caused a third to be burnt, who had been buried more than sixteen years, and had sucked the blood and caused the death of two of his sons. The commissary, having made his report to the general officers, was deputed to the court of the emperor, who commanded that some officers, both of war and justice, some physicians and surgeons, and some learned men, should be sent to examine the causes of these extraordinary events. The person who related these particulars to us had heard them from Monsieur, the Count de Gabaras at Freiburg in Brigau in 1730. The End The Vampire. Introduction The superstition upon which this tale is founded is very general in the East. Among the Arabians, it appears to be common. It did not, however, extend itself to the Greeks until after the embellishment of Christianity and it has only assumed its present form since the division of the Latin and Greek churches, at which time the idea becoming prevalent that a Latin body could not corrupt if buried in their territory, it gradually increased and formed the subject of many wonderful stories, still extant, of the dead rising from their graves and feeding upon the blood of the young and beautiful. In the West it spread, with some slight variation, all over Hungary, Poland, Austria, and Lorraine, where the belief existed that vampires nightly imbibed a certain portion of the blood of their victims, who became emaciated, lost their strength, and speedily died of consumptions, whilst these human bloodsuckers fattened, and their veins became distended to such a state of repletion as to cause the blood to flow from all the passages of their bodies, and even from the very pores of their skins. In the London Journal of March 1732 is a curious and, of course, credible account of a particular case of vampirism, which is stated to have occurred at Madriga in Hungary. It appears that upon an examination of the commander-in-chief and magistrates of the place, they positively and unanimously affirmed that about five years before, a certain heyduk named Arnold Paul had been heard to say that at Kasovia, on the frontiers of the turkish servia he had been tormented by a vampire but had found a way to rid himself of the evil by eating some of the earth out of the vampire's grave and rubbing himself with his blood this precaution however did not prevent him from becoming a vampire himself the universal belief is that a person sucked by a vampire becomes a vampire himself and sucks in his turn for about 20 or 30 days after his death and burial Many persons complained of having been tormented by him, and a deposition was made that four persons had been deprived of life by his attacks. To prevent further mischief, the inhabitants, having consulted their Hadagni chief bailiff, took up the body and found it, as is supposed to be usual in cases of vampirism, fresh and entirely free from corruption, and emitting from the mouth, nose, and ears pure and florid blood. Proof having been thus obtained, they resorted to the accustomed remedy. A stake was driven entirely through the heart and body of Arnold Paul, at which he is reported to have cried out as dreadfully as if he had been alive. This done, they cut off his head, burned his body, and threw the ashes into his grave. The same measures were adopted with the corpses of all those persons who had previously died from vampirism lest they should, in their turn, become agents upon others who survive them. This monstrous rhodomontade is here related because it seems better adapted to illustrate the subject of the present observations than any other instance which could be adduced. In many parts of Greece it is considered as a sort of punishment after death, for some henuous crime committed whilst in existence, that the deceased is not only doomed to vampirize, but compelled to confine his infernal visitations solely to those beings he loved most while upon earth, those to whom he was bound by ties of kindred and affection. A supposition alluded to in the Jower, But first on earth, as vampires sent, thy corpse shall from its tomb be rent, then ghastly haunt the native place and suck the blood of all thy race. There from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life. Yet loathe the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living corpse. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire. As cursing thee, thou cursing them, thy flowers are withered on the stem. But one that for thy crime must fall, the youngest, best, beloved of all, shall bless thee with a father's name. That word shall wrap thy heart in flame. Yet thou must end thy task and mark her cheeks last tinge, her eyes last spark, and the last glassy glance must view which breezes o'er its lifeless blue, then with unhallowed hand shall tear the tresses of her yellow hair, of which in life a lock when shorn affection's fondest pledge was worn, but now is borne away by the memorial of thine agony. Yet with thine own best blood shall drip thy gnashing tooth and haggard lip, then stalking to thy sullen grave, go, and with ghouls and defreats rave, till these in horror shrink away from specter more accursed than they. Mr. Suddy has also introduced in his wild but beautiful poem Thalaba the vampire corpse of the Arabian maid Oniza, who is represented as having returned from the grave for the purpose of tormenting him she best loved whilst in existence but this cannot be supposed to have resulted from the sinfulness of her life, she being portrayed throughout the whole of the tale as a complete type of purity and innocence. The voracious Pornophore gives a long account in his travels of several astonishing cases of vampirism, to which he pretends to have been an eyewitness, and Calme, in his great work upon the subject, besides a variety of anecdotes and traditionary narratives illustrative of its effects, has put forth some learned dissertations, tending to prove it to be a classical as well as a barbarian error. Many curious and interesting notices on this singularly horrible superstition might be added. Though the present may suffice for the limits of a note, necessarily devoted to explanation, and which may now be concluded by merely remarking that though the term vampire is the one in most general acceptation, there are several others synonymous with it, made use of in various parts of the world, such as Rucolocha, Vardulacha, Ghoul, Brucoloka, etc. THE vampire. It happened that in the midst of the dissipations attendant upon a London winter, there appeared at the various parties of the leaders of the town a nobleman, more remarkable for his singularities than his rank he gazed upon the mirth around him as if he could not participate therein. Apparently the light laughter of the fair only attracted his attention that he might by a look quell it and throw fear into those breasts where thoughtlessness reigned. Those who felt this sensation of awe could not explain whence it arose. Some attributed it to the dead grey eye, which fixing upon the object's face did not seem to penetrate and at one glance to pierce through to the inward workings of the heart, but fell upon the cheek with a leaden ray that weighed upon the skin it could not pass. His peculiarities caused him to be invited to every house. All wished to see him, and those who had been accustomed to violent excitement, and now felt the weight of Ennui, were pleased at having something in their presence capable of engaging their attention. In spite of the deadly hue of his face, which never gained a warmer tint, Either from the blush of modesty or from the strong emotion of passion. Though its form and outline were beautiful, many of the female hunters after notoriety attempted to win his attention and gain at least some marks of what they might term affection. Lady Mercer, who had been the mockery of every monster shewn in drawing rooms since her marriage, threw herself in this way and did all but put on the dress of a mountebank to attract his notice, though in vain. When she stood before him, though his eyes were apparently fixed upon hers, still it seemed as if they were unperceived. Even her unappalled impudence was baffled, and she left the field. But though the common adulteress could not influence even the guidance of his eyes, it was not that the female sex was indifferent to him, yet such was the apparent caution with which he spoke to the virtuous wife and innocent daughter, that few knew he ever addressed himself to females. He had, however, the reputation of a winning tongue, and whether it was that that it even overcame the dread of his singular character, or that they were moved by his apparent hatred of vice, he was as often among those females who form the boast of their sex from their domestic virtues as among those who sully it by their vices. About the same time there came to London a young gentleman of the name of Aubrey. He was an orphan left with an only sister in the possession of great wealth by parents who died while he was yet in childhood. Left also to himself by guardians who thought it their duty merely to take care of his fortune, while they relinquished the more important charge of his mind to the care of mercenary subalterns, he cultivated more his imagination than his judgment. He had hence that high romantic feeling of honor and candor which daily ruins so many milliners' apprentices. He believed all to sympathize with virtue, and thought that vice was thrown in by providence merely for the picturesque effect of the scene, as we see in romances. He thought that the misery of a cottage merely consisted in the vesting of clothes, which were as warm, but which were better adapted to the painter's eye by their irregular folds and various colored patches. He thought, in fine, that the dreams of poets were the realities of life. He was handsome, frank, and rich. For these reasons, upon his entering into the gay circles, many mothers surrounded him, striving which should describe with least truth their languishing, romping favourites. The daughters, at the same time, by their brightening countenances when he approached, and by their sparkling eyes when he opened his lips, soon led him into false notions of his talents and his merit. Attached as he was to the romance of his solitary hours, he was startled at finding that Except in the tallow and wax candles that flickered, not from the presence of a ghost, but from want of snuffing, there was no foundation in real life for any of that conjuries of pleasing pictures and descriptions contained in those volumes, from which he had formed his study. Finding, however, some compensation in his gratified vanity, he was about to relinquish his dreams when the extraordinary being we have above described crossed him in his career. He watched him and the very impossibility of forming an idea of the character of a man entirely absorbed in himself, who gave few other signs of his observation of external objects than the tacit assent to their existence, implied by the avoidance of their contact. Allowing his imagination to picture everything that flattered its propensity to extravagant ideas, he soon formed this object into the hero of a romance, and determined to observe the offspring of his fancy, rather than that person before him. He became acquainted with him, paid him attentions, and so far advanced upon his notice that his presence was always recognized. He gradually learnt that Lord Ruthven's affairs were embarrassed, and soon found from the notes of preparation in Blank Street that he was about to travel. Desirous of gaining some information respecting this singular character, who till now had only whetted his curiosity he hinted to his guardians that it was time for him to perform the tour, which for many generations has been thought necessary to enable the young to take some rapid steps in the career of vice towards putting themselves upon an equality with the aged, and not allowing them to appear as if fallen from the skies, whenever scandalous intrigues are mentioned as the subjects of pleasantry or of praise, according to the degree of skill shown in carrying them on. They consented, and Aubrey, immediately mentioning his intentions to Lord Ruthven, was surprised to receive from him a proposal to join him. Flattered by such a mark of esteem from him, who apparently had nothing in common with other men, he gladly accepted it, and in a few days they had passed the circling waters. If Aubrey had no opportunity of studying Lord Ruthven's character, and now he found that Though many more of his actions were exposed to his view, the results offered different conclusions from the apparent motives to his conduct. His companion was profuse in his liberality. The idle, the vagabond, and the beggar received from his hand more than enough to relieve their immediate wants. But Aubrey could not avoid remarking that it was not upon the virtuous, reduced by indigence by the misfortunes attendant upon every virtue, that he bestowed his alms. These were sent from the door with hardly suppressed sneers. But when the profligate came to ask something, not to relieve his want, but to allow him to wallow in his lust, or to sink him deeper in his iniquity, he was sent away with rich charity. This was, however, attributed by him to the greater importunity of the vicious, which generally prevails over the retiring bashfulness of the virtuous indigent. There was one circumstance about the charity of his lordship, which was still more impressed upon his mind. All those upon whom it was bestowed inevitably found that there was a curse upon it, for they were all either led to the scaffold or sunk to the lowest and the most abject misery. At Brussels and other towns through which they passed, Aubrey was surprised at the apparent eagerness with which his companions sought for the centres of all fashionable vice. There he entered into all the spirit of the pharaoh-table. He betted and always gambled with success, except where the known sharper was his antagonist, and then he lost even more than he gained. But it was always with the same unchanging face with which he generally watched the society around. It was not, however, so when he encountered the rash, youthful novice or the luckless father of a numerous family, then his very wish seemed fortune's law. This apparent abstractedness of mind was laid aside, and his eyes sparkled with more fire than that of a cat whilst dallying with the half-dead mouse. In every town he left the formerly affluent youth torn from the circle he adorned, cursing in the solitude of a dungeon, the fate that had drawn him within the reach of this fiend, whilst many a father sat frantic amidst the speaking looks of mute-hungry children without a single farthing of his late immense wealth wherewith to buy even sufficient to satisfy their present craving. Yet he took no money from the gambling table, but immediately lost to the ruiner of many, the last guilder he had just snatched from the convulsive grasp of the innocent. This might but be the result of certain degree of knowledge, which was not, however, capable of combating the cunning of the more experienced Aubrey often wished to represent this to his friend and beg him to resign that charity and pleasure which proved the ruin of all and did not tend to his own profit. But he delayed it, for each day he hoped his friend would give him some opportunity of speaking frankly and openly to him. However, this never occurred. Lord Ruth Venn, in his carriage and amidst the various wild and rich scenes of nature, was always the same. His eye spoke less than his lip, And though Aubrey was near the object of his curiosity, he obtained no greater gratification from it than the constant excitement of vainly wishing to break that mystery, which to his exalted imagination began to assume the appearance of something supernatural. They soon arrived at Rome, and Aubrey for a time lost sight of his companion. He left him in daily attendance upon the morning circle of an Italian countess whilst he went in search of the memorials of another almost deserted city. Whilst he was thus engaged, letters arrived from England, which he opened with eager impatience. The first was from his sister, breathing nothing but affection. The others were from his guardians. The latter astonished him. If it had before entered into his imagination that there was an evil power resident in his companion, these seemed to give him sufficient reason for the belief. His guardians insisted upon his immediately leaving his friend and urged that his character was dreadfully vicious, for that the possession of irresistible powers of seduction rendered his licentiousness habits more dangerous to society. It had been discovered that his contempt for the adulteress had not originated in hatred of her character, but that he had required to enhance his gratification that his victim, the partner of his guilt, Should be hurled from the pinnacle of unsullied virtue down to the lowest abyss of infamy and degradation. In fine, that all those females whom he had sought, apparently on account of their virtue, had since his departure thrown even the mask aside, and had not scrupled to expose the whole deformity of their vices to the public gaze. Aubrey determined upon leaving one, whose character had not yet shown a single bright point on which to rest the eye. He resolved to invent some plausible pretext for abandoning him altogether, proposing in the meanwhile to watch him more closely, and let no slight circumstance pass by unnoticed. He entered into the same circle, and soon perceived that his lordship was endeavouring to work upon the inexperience of the daughter of the lady whose house he chiefly frequented. In Italy, it is seldom that an unmarried female is met with in society. He was therefore obliged to carry on his plans in secret, but Aubrey's eyes followed him in all his windings, and soon discovered that an assassination had been appointed, which would most likely end in the ruin of an innocent, though thoughtless, girl. Losing no time, he entered the apartment of Lord Ruthven, and abruptly asked him his intentions with respect to the lady, informing him at the same time that he was aware of his being about to meet her that very night. Lord Ruthven answered that his intentions were such as he supposed all would have upon such an occasion, and upon being pressed whether he intended to marry her, merely laughed. Aubrey retired, and immediately writing a note to say that from that moment he must decline accompanying his lordship in the remainder of their proposed tour, he ordered his servant to seek other apartments, and calling upon the mother of the lady, informed her of all he knew not only with regard to her daughter, but also concerning the character of his lordship. The assassination was prevented. Lord Ruthven next day merely sent his servant to notify his complete assent to a separation, but did not hint any suspicion of his plans having been foiled by Aubrey's interposition. Having left Rome, Aubrey directed his steps towards Greece, and crossing the peninsula, soon found himself at Athens. He then fixed his residence in the house of a Greek, and soon occupied himself in tracing the faded records of ancient glory upon monuments that apparently, ashamed of chronicling the deeds of free men only before slaves, had hidden themselves beneath the sheltering soil or many colored lichens. Under the same roof as himself existed a being, so beautiful and delicate, that she might have formed the model for a painter wishing to portray on canvas the promised hope of the faithful and Mohammed's paradise, save that her eyes spoke too much mind for anyone to think she could belong to those who had no souls. As she danced upon the plain or tripped along the mountainside, one would have thought the gazelle a poor type of her beauties. For who would have exchanged her eye, apparently the eye of animated nature? for that sleepy, luxurious look of the animal suited but to the taste of an epicure. The light step of Ianthe often accompanied Aubrey in his search after antiquities, and often would the unconscious girl engaged in the pursuit of a cashmere butterfly show the whole beauty of her form, floating as it were upon the wind, to the eager gaze of him, who forgot the letters he had just deciphered upon an almost effaced tablet, in the contemplation of her sylph-like figure, Often would her tresses falling as she flittered around exhibit in the sun's ray such delicacy, brilliant, and swiftly fading hues, it might well excuse the forgetfulness of the antiquary, who let escape from his mind the very object he had before thought of vital importance to the proper interpretation of a passage of Pausinaeus. But why attempt to describe charms which all feel but none can appreciate? It was innocence, youth, and beauty unaffected by crowded drawing-rooms and stifling balls. While he drew those remains of which he wished to preserve a memorial for his future hours, she would stand by and watch the magic effects of his pencil in tracing the scenes of her native place. She would then describe to him the circling dance upon the open plain, would paint to him in all the glowing colors of youthful memory, the marriage pomp she remembered viewing in her infancy and then turning to subjects that had evidently made a greater impression upon her mind, would tell him all the supernatural tales of her nurse. Her earnestness and apparent belief of what she narrated excited the interest even of Aubrey, and often, as she told him the tale of the living vampire, who had passed years amidst his friends and dearest ties, forced every year by feeding upon the life of a lovely female to prolong his existence for the ensuing months, His blood would run cold, whilst he attempted to laugh her out of such idle and horrible fantasies. But Iante cried to him the names of old men, who had at last detected one living among themselves, after several of their near relatives and children had been found marked with the stamp of the fiend's appetite. And when she found him so incredulous, she begged of him to believe her, for it had been remarked, that those who had dared to question their existence always had some proof given, which obliged them, with grief and heartbreaking, to confess it was true. She detailed to him the traditional appearance of these monsters, and his horror was increased. By hearing a pretty accurate description of Lord Ruthven, he, however, still persisted in persuading her that there could be no truth in her fears. Though at the same time he wondered at the many coincidences which had all tended to excite a belief in the supernatural power of Lord Ruthven, Aubrey began to attach himself more and more to Ianthe. Her innocence, so contrasted with all the affected virtues of the women among whom he had sought for his vision of romance, won his heart. And while he ridiculed the idea of a young man of English habits marrying an uneducated Greek girl, Still he found himself more and more attached to the almost fairy form before him. He would tear himself at times from her, and forming a plan for some antiquarian research he would depart, determined not to return until his object was attained. But he always found it impossible to fix his attention upon the ruins around him, whilst in his mind he retained an image that seemed alone the rightful possessor of his thoughts. Myanthe was unconscious of his love and was ever the same frank infantile being he had first known. She always seemed to part from him with reluctance, but it was because she had no longer anyone with whom she could visit her favorite haunts. Whilst her guardian was occupied in sketching or uncovering some fragment which had yet escaped the destructive hand of time, she had appealed to her parents on the subject of vampires, and they both, with several present, affirmed their existence pale with horror at the very name. Soon after, Aubrey determined to proceed upon one of his excursions, which was to detain him for a few hours. When they heard the name of the place, they all at once begged of him not to return at night, as he must necessarily pass through a wood where no Greek would ever remain, after the day had closed upon any consideration. They described it as the resort of the vampires in their nocturnal orgies, and denounced the most heavy evils as impending upon him who dared to cross their path. Aubrey made light of their representations and tried to laugh them out of the idea, but when he saw them shudder at his daring thus to mock a superior, infernal power, the very name of which apparently made their blood freeze, he was silent. Next morning, Aubrey set off upon his excursion unattended. He was surprised to observe the melancholy face of his host, and was concerned to find that his words, mocked the belief of those horrible fiends, had inspired them with such terror. When he was about to depart, Ianthe came to the side of his horse, and earnestly begged of him to return. ere night allowed the power of these beings to be put in action. He promised. He was, however, so occupied in his research that he did not perceive the daylight would soon end, and that in the horizon there was one of those specks which, in the warmer climates, so rapidly gather into a tremendous mass and pour all their rage upon the devoted country. He at last, however, mounted his horse, determined to make up by speed for his delay, but it was too late. Twilight in these southern climates is almost unknown. Immediately the sun sets, night begins, and dear he had advanced far, the power of the storm was above, its echoing thunders had scarcely an interval of rest. Its thick, heavy rain forced its way through the canopying foliage, whilst the blue forked lightning seemed to fall and radiate at his very feet. Suddenly his horse took fright, and he was carried with dreadful rapidity through the entangled forest. The animal at last, through fatigue, stopped, and he found, by the glare of lightning, that he was in the neighborhood of a hovel that hardly lifted itself from the masses of dead leaves and brushwood which surrounded it. Dismounting, he approached, hoping to find someone to guide him to the town, or at least trusting to obtain shelter from the pelting of the storm. As he approached, the thunders for a moment silent, allowed him to hear the dreadful shrieks of a woman mingling with the stifled, exultant mockery of a laugh, continued in one almost unbroken sound. He was startled, but roused by the thunder which again rolled over his head, he, with a sudden effort, forced open the door of the hut. He found himself in utter darkness. The sound, however, guided him. He was apparently unperceived, for... Though he called, still the sounds continued, and no notice was taken of him. He found himself in contact with someone, whom he immediately seized, when a voice cried, again baffled, to which a loud laugh succeeded. And he felt himself grappled by one whose strength seemed superhuman. Determined to sell his life as dearly as he could, he struggled, but it was in vain. He was lifted from his feet and hurled with enormous force against the ground. His enemy threw himself upon him, and kneeling upon his breast, had placed his hands upon his throat. When the glare of many torches penetrating through the hole that gave light in the day disturbed him, he instantly rose, and leaving his prey rushed through the door, and in a moment the crashing of the branches as he broke through the wood was no longer heard. The storm was now still, and Aubrey, incapable of moving, was soon heard by those without. They entered. The light of their torches fell upon the mud walls, and the thatch loaded on every individual straw with heavy flakes of soot. At the desire of Aubrey they searched for her who had attracted him by her cries. He was again left in darkness. But what was his horror, when the light of the torches once more burst upon him, to perceive the airy form of his fair conductress brought in a lifeless corpse? He shut his eyes, hoping that it was but a vision arising from his disturbed imagination. But he again saw the same form. When he unclosed them, stretched by his side, there was no color upon her cheek, not even upon her lip. Yet there was a stillness about her face that seemed almost as attaching as the life that once dwelt there. Upon her neck and breast was blood, and upon her throat were the marks of teeth having opened the vein. To this the men pointed, crying simultaneously, struck with horror. A vampire! A vampire! A litter was quickly formed, and Aubrey was laid by the side of her, who had been lately to him the object of so many bright and fairy visions, now fallen with the flower of life that had died within her. He knew not what his thoughts were. His mind was benumbed and seemed to shun reflection and take refuge in vacancy. He held almost unconsciously in his hand a naked dagger of particular construction, which had been found in the hut. They were soon met by different parties who had been engaged in the search of her whom a mother had missed. Their lamentable cries as they approached the city forewarned the parents of some dreadful catastrophe. To describe their grief would be impossible. But when they ascertained the cause of their child's death, they looked at Aubrey and pointed to the corpse. They were inconsolable. Both died broken-hearted. Aubrey being put to bed was seized with a most violent fever, and was often delirious. In these intervals he would call upon Lord Ruthven and upon Ianthe. By some unaccountable combination he seemed to beg of his former companion to spare the being he loved. At other times he would imprecate maledictions upon his head, and cursed him as her destroyer. Lord Ruthven glanced at this time to arrive at Athens, and from whatever motive, upon hearing of the state of Aubrey, immediately placed himself in the same house and became his constant attendant. When the latter recovered from his delirium, he was horrified and startled at the sight of him, whose image he had now combined with that of a vampire. But Lord Ruthven, by his kind words, implying almost repentance for the fault that had caused their separation, and still more by the attention, anxiety, and care which he showed soon reconciled him to his presence. His lordship seemed quite changed. He no longer appeared that apathetic being who had so astonished Aubrey, but as soon as his convalescence began to be rapid, he again gradually retired into the same state of mind, and Aubrey perceived no difference from the former man, except that at times he was surprised to meet his gaze fixed intently upon him, with a smile of malicious exultation playing upon his lips. He knew not why, but this smile haunted him. During the last stage of the invalid's recovery, Lord Ruthven was apparently engaged in watching the tideless waves raised by the cooling breeze, or in marking the progress of these orbs circling, like our world, the moveless sun. Indeed, he appeared to wish to avoid the eyes of all. Aubrey's mind by this shock was much weakened and that elasticity of spirit which had once so distinguished him now seemed to have fled forever. He was now as much a lover of solitude and silence as Lord Ruthven, but much as he wished for solitude his mind could not find it in the neighbourhood of Athens. If he sought it amidst the ruins he had formerly frequented, Ianthe's form stood by his side. If he sought it in the woods, her light step would appear wandering amidst the underwood. In quest of the modest Violet, then suddenly turning around would show to his wild imagination her pale face and wounded throat, with a meek smile upon her lips. He determined to fly scenes, every feature of which created such bitter associations in his mind. He proposed to Lord Ruthven, to whom he held himself bound by the tender care he had taken of him during his illness, that they should visit those parts of Greece neither had yet seen. They traveled in every direction and sought every spot to which a recollection could be attached. But though they thus hastened from place to place, yet they seemed not to heed what they gazed upon. They heard much of robbers, but they gradually began to slight these reports, which they imagined were only the invention of individuals whose interest it was to excite the generosity of those whom they defended from pretended dangers. In consequence of thus neglecting the advice of the inhabitants, On one occasion they traveled with only a few guards, more to serve as guides than as a defense. Upon entering, however, a narrow defile at the bottom of which was the bed of a torrent with large masses of rock brought down from the neighboring precipices, they had reason to repent their negligence, for scarcely were the whole of the party engaged in the narrow pass when they were startled by the whistling of bullets close to their heads and by the echoed report of several guns. In an instant, their guards had left them, and placing themselves behind rocks, had begun to fire in the direction whence the report came. Lord Ruthven and Aubrey, imitating their example, retired for a moment behind the sheltering turn of the defile. But ashamed of being thus detained by a foe, who with insulting shouts bade them advance, and being exposed to unresisting slaughter, if any of the robbers should climb above and take them in the rear, they determined at once to rush forward in search of the enemy. Hardly had they lost the shelter of the rock when Lord Ruthven received a shot in the shoulder, which brought him to the ground. Aubrey hastened to his assistance, and no longer heeding the contest of his own peril, was soon surprised by seeing the robbers' faces around him. His guards, having upon Lord Ruthven's being wounded, immediately thrown up their arms and surrendered. By promises of great reward, Aubrey soon induced them to convey his wounded friend to a neighboring cabin and having agreed upon a ransom, he was no more disturbed by their presence, they being content merely to guard the entrance till their comrade should return with the promised sum, for which he had an order. Lord Ruthven's strength rapidly decreased, and two days' mortification ensued, and the death seemed advancing with hasty steps. His conduct and appearance had not changed. He seemed as unconscious of pain as he had been of the objects about him, but towards the close of the last evening his mind became apparently uneasy, and his eye fixed upon Aubrey, who was induced to offer his assistance with more than usual earnestness. Assist me. You may save me. You may do more than that. I mean not my life. I heed the death of my existence as little as that of the passing day. But you may save my honor, your friend's honor. How? Tell me how. I would do anything replied Aubrey. I need but little. My life ebbs apace. I cannot explain the whole. But if you would conceal all you know of me, my honor were free from stain in the world's mouth. And if my death were unknown for some time in England, I, I, but life, it shall not be known. Swear, cried the dying man, raising himself with exultant violence. Swear by all your soul reveres, by all your nature's fears. Swear that for a year and a day you will not impart your knowledge of my crimes or death to any living being in any way, whatever may happen, or whatever you may see. His eyes seemed bursting from their sockets. I swear, said Aubrey. He sunk laughing upon his pillow and breathed no more. Aubrey retired to rest, but did not sleep. The many circumstances attending his acquaintance with his man rose upon his mind, and he knew not why. When he remembered his oath, a cold shivering came over him, as if from the presentiment of something horrible awaiting him. Rising early in the morning, he was about to enter the hovel in which he had left the corpse, when a robber met him and informed him that it was no longer there. "'having been conveyed by himself and comrades upon his retiring to the pinnacle of a neighbouring mount, "'according to a promise they had given his lordship, "'that it should be exposed to the first cold ray of the moon that rose after his death. "'Aubrey, astonished, and taking several of the men, "'determined to go and bury it upon the spot where it lay. "'But when he had mounted to the summit he found no trace of either the corpse or the clothes.' though the robbers swore they pointed out the identical rock on which they had laid the body. For a time his mind was bewildered in conjectures, but at last he returned, convinced that they had buried the corpse for the sake of the clothes. Weary of a country in which he had met with such terrible misfortunes, and in which all apparently conspired to heighten that superstitious melancholy that had seized upon his mind, he resolved to leave it, and soon arrived at Smyrna. While waiting for a vessel to convey him to Otranto or to Naples, he occupied himself in arranging those effects he had with him belonging to Lord Ruthven. Amongst other things, there was a case containing several weapons of offense, more or less adapted to ensure the death of the victim. There were several daggers and odd Whilst turning them over and examining their curious forms... What was his surprise at finding a sheath apparently ornamented in the same style as the dagger discovered in the fatal hut? He shuddered. Hastening to gain further proof, he found the weapon, and his horror may be imagined when he discovered that it fitted, though peculiarly shaped, the sheath he held in his hand. His eyes seemed to need no further certainty. They seemed gazing to be bound to the dagger. Yet still he wished to disbelieve. But the particular form, the same varying tints upon the half and sheath, were alike in splendor on both, and left no room for doubt. There were also drops of blood on each. He left Smyrna, and on his way home at Rome, his first inquiries were concerning the lady he had attempted to snatch from Lord Ruthven's seductive arts. Her parents were in distress, their fortune ruined, and she had not been heard of since the departure of his lordship. Aubrey's mind became almost broken under so many repeated horrors. He was afraid that this lady had fallen a victim to the destroyer of Ianthi. He became morose and silent, and his only occupation consisted in urging the speed of the postilions, as if he were going to save the life of someone he held dear. He arrived at Calais. A breeze which seemed obedient to his will soon wafted him to the English shores, And he hastened to the mansion of his father's, and there for a moment appeared to lose in the embraces and caresses of his sister all memory of the past. If she before, by her infantine caresses, had gained his affection, now that the woman began to appear, she was still more attaching as a companion. Miss Aubrey had not that winning grace which gains the gaze and applause of the drawing-room assemblies. There was none of that brilliancy which only exists in the heated atmosphere of a crowded apartment. Her blue eye was never lit up by the levity of the mind beneath. There was a melancholy charm about it which did not seem to arise from misfortune, but from some feeling within that appeared to indicate a soul conscious of a brighter realm. Her step was not that light footing which strays wherever a butterfly or a color may attract. It was sedate and pensive when alone her face was never brightened by the smile of joy. But when her brother breathed to her his affection and would in her present forget those griefs she knew destroyed his rest, who would have exchanged her smile for that of the voluptuary? It seemed as if those eyes, that face, were then playing in the light of their own native sphere. She was yet only eighteen, and had not been presented to the world, it having been thought by her guardians more fit that her presentation should be delayed until her brother's return from the continent, when he might be her protector. It was now, therefore, resolved that the next drawing-room, which was fast approaching, should be the epoch of her entry into the busy scene. Aubrey would rather have remained in the mansion of his father's, and fed upon the melancholy which overpowered him. He could not feel interest about the frivolities of fashionable strangers when his mind had been so torn by the events he had witnessed, but he determined to sacrifice his own comfort to the protection of his sister. They soon arrived in town and prepared for the next day, which had been announced as a drawing-room. The crowd was excessive, the drawing-room had not been held for a long time, and all who were anxious to bask in the smile of royalty hastened thither. Aubrey was there with his sister. While he was standing in a corner by himself, heedless of all around him, engaged in the remembrance that the first time he had seen Lord Ruthven was in that very place, he felt himself suddenly seized by the arm, and a voice he recognized too well sounded in his ear. Remember your oath. He had hardly courage to turn, fearful of seeing a specter that would blast him when he perceived at a little distance the same figure which had attracted his notice on this spot upon his first entry into society. He gazed till his limbs, almost refusing to bear their weight. He was obliged to take the arm of a friend, and forcing a passage through the crowd, he threw himself into his carriage and was driven home. He paced the room with hurried steps and fixed his hands upon his head, as if he were afraid his thoughts were bursting from his brain. Lord Ruthven, again before him. Circumstances started up in dreadful array. The dagger, his oath. He roused himself. He could not believe it possible. The dead rise again. He thought his imagination had conjured up the image his mind was resting upon. It was impossible that it could be real. He determined, therefore, to go again into society. For though he attempted to ask concerning Lord Ruthven, The name hung upon his lips, and he could not succeed in gaining information. He went a few nights after with his sister to the assembly of a near relation, leaving her under the protection of a matron. He retired into a recess, and there gave himself up to his own devouring thoughts. Perceiving at last that many were leaving, he roused himself, and entering another room found his sister surrounded by several, apparently in earnest conversation. He attempted to pass and get near her, when one, whom he requested to move, turned around and revealed to him those features he most abhorred. He sprang forward, seized his sister's arm, and with hurried step forced her towards the street. At the door he found himself impeded by the crowd of servants who were waiting for their lords. And while he was engaged in passing them, he again heard that voice whisper close to him, Remember your oath. He did not dare to turn, but hurrying, his sister soon reached home. Aubrey became almost distracted. If before his mind had been absorbed by one subject, how much more completely was it engrossed, now that the certainty of the monster's living again pressed upon his thoughts? His sister's attentions were now unheeded, and it was in vain that she entreated him to explain to her what had caused his abrupt conduct. He only uttered a few words, and those terrified her. The more he thought, the more he was bewildered. His oath startled him. Was he then to allow this monster to roam, bearing ruin upon his breath, amidst all he held dear and not avert its progress? His very sister might have been touched by him, but even if he were to break his oath and disclose his suspicions, who would believe him? He thought of employing his own hand to free the world from such a wretch. But death, he remembered, had already been mocked. For days he remained in this state, shut up in his room. He saw no one and ate only when his sister came, who with eyes streaming with tears besought him for her sake to support nature. At last, no longer capable of bearing stillness and solitude, he left his house, roamed from street to street, anxious to fly that image which haunted him. His dress became neglected, and he wandered, as often exposed to the noonday sun as to the midnight damps. He was no longer to be recognized. At first he returned with the evening to the house, but at last he laid him down to rest wherever fatigue overtook him. His sister, anxious for his safety, employed people to follow him, but they were soon distanced by him who fled from a pursuer swifter than any. From thought, his conduct, however, suddenly changed. Struck with the idea that he left by his absence the whole of his friends, with a fiend amongst them, of whose presence they were unconscious, he determined to enter again into society and watch him closely, anxious to forewarn in spite of his oath, all whom Lord Ruthven approached with intimacy. But when he entered into a room, his haggard and suspicious looks were so striking, his inward shudderings so visible, that his sister was at last obliged to beg of him to abstain from seeking, for her sake, a society which affected him so strongly. When, however, remonstrance proved unavailing, the guardians thought proper to interpose, and fearing that his mind was becoming alienated, they thought it high time to resume again that trust which had been before imposed upon them by Aubrey's parents. Desirous of saving him from the injuries and sufferings he had daily encountered in his wanderings, and of preventing him from exposing to the general eye those marks of what they considered folly, they engaged a physician to reside in the house and take constant care of him. He hardly appeared to notice it, so completely was his mind absorbed by one terrible subject. His incoherence became at last so great that he was confined to his chamber. There he would often lie for days, incapable of being roused. He had become emancipated. His eyes had attained a glassy luster. The only sign of affection and recollection remaining displayed itself upon the entry of his sister. Then he would sometimes start, and seizing her hands with looks that severely afflicted her, he would desire her not to touch him. Oh, do not touch him! if your love for me is aught, do not go near him. When, however, she inquired to whom he referred, his only answer was, true, true. And again he sank into a state, whence not even she could rouse him. This lasted many months. Gradually, however, as the year was passing, his incoherences became less frequent, and his mind threw off a portion of its gloom, whilst his guardians observed that several times in the day he would count upon his fingers a definite number and then smile. The time had nearly elapsed, when upon the last day of the year, one of his guardians entering his room began to converse with his physician upon the melancholy circumstance of Aubrey's being in so awful a situation. When his sister was going next day to be married, instantly Aubrey's attention was attracted. He asked anxiously to whom? Glad of this mark of returning intellect, of which they feared he had been deprived, they mentioned the name of the Earl of Marsden. Thinking this was a young Earl whom he had met with in society, Aubrey seemed pleased and astonished them still more by his expressing his intention to be present at the nuptials and desiring to see his sister. They answered not, but in a few minutes his sister was with him. He was apparently again capable of being affected by the influence of her lovely smile, for he pressed her to his breast and kissed her cheek. Wet with tears, flowing at the thought of her brothers being once more alive to the feelings of affection, he began to speak with all his wanton warmth, and to congratulate her upon her marriage with a person so distinguished for rank and every accomplishment, when he suddenly perceived a locket upon her breast, opening it. What was his surprise at beholding the features of the monster who had so long influenced his life? He seized the portrait in a paroxysm of rage and trampled it underfoot. Upon her asking him why he thus destroyed the resemblance of her future husband, he looked as if he did not understand her. Then, seizing her hands and gazing on her with a frantic expression of countenance, he bade her swear that she would never wed this monster, for he, but he could not advance. It seemed as if that voice again bade him remember his oath. He turned suddenly around, thinking Lord Ruthven was near him, but saw no one. In the meantime, the guardians and physicians, who had heard the whole and thought this was but a return of his disorder, entered and forcing him from Miss Aubrey, desiring her to leave him. He fell upon his knees to them. He implored, he begged of them to delay, but for one day... They, attributing this to the insanity they imagined had taken possession of his mind, endeavored to pacify him, and retired. Lord Ruthven had called the morning after the drawing-room and had been refused with everyone else. When he heard of Aubrey's ill-health, he readily understood himself to be the cause of it, but when he learned that he was deemed insane, his exultation and pleasure could hardly be concealed from those among whom he had gained this information. He hastened to the house of his former companion, and by constant attendance, and the pretense of great affection for the brother and interest in his fate, he gradually won the ear of Miss Aubrey, who could resist his power. His tongue had dangers and toils to recount, could speak of himself as of an individual having no sympathy with any being on the crowded earth, save with her to whom he addressed himself tell how, since he knew her, his existence had begun to seem worthy of preservation, if it were merely that he might listen to her soothing accents. In fine, he knew so well how to use the serpent's art, for such was the will of fate that he gained her affections. The title of the elder branch falling at length to him, he obtained an important embassy, which served as an excuse for hastening the marriage, in spite of her brother's deranged state which was to take place the very day before his departure for the continent. Aubrey, when he was left by the physician and his guardians, attempted to bribe the servants, but in vain. He asked for pen and paper. It was given him. He wrote a letter to his sister, conjuring her as she valued her own happiness, her own honor, and the honor of those now in the grave who once held her in their arms as their hope and the hope of their house. Delay but for a few hours that marriage, on which he denounced the most heavy curses. The servants promised they would deliver it, but giving it to the physician, he thought it better not to harass any more the mind of Miss Aubrey by what he considered the ravings of a maniac. Night passed on without rest to the busy inmates of the house, and Aubrey heard with a horror that may more easily be conceived than described the notes of busy preparation. Morning came, and the sound of carriages broke upon his ear. Aubrey grew, almost frantic. The curiosity of the servants at last overcame their vigilance. They gradually stole away, leaving him in the custody of a helpless old woman. He seized the opportunity. With one bound, was out of the room, and in a moment found himself in the apartment where all were nearly assembled. Lord Ruthven was the first to perceive him. He immediately approached, and taking his arm by force, hurried him from the room, speechless with rage. When on the staircase, Lord Ruthven whispered in his ear, Remember your oath, and know, if not my bride today, your sister is dishonored. Women are frail. So saying, he pushed him towards his attendants, who, roused by the old woman, had come in search of him. Aubrey could no longer support himself. His rage not finding vent had broken a blood vessel, and he was conveyed to bed. This was not mentioned to his sister, who was not present when he entered, as the physician was afraid of agitating her. The marriage was solemnized, and the bride and bridegroom left London. Aubrey's weakness increased. The effusion of blood produced symptoms of the near approach of death. He desired his sister's guardians might be called and when the midnight hour had struck, he related composedly what the reader had perused. He died immediately after. The guardians hastened to protect Miss Aubrey, but when they arrived it was too late. Lord Ruthven had disappeared, and Aubrey's sister had glutted the thirst of a vampire. The End
1: The Black Vampire, A Legend of St. Domingo So I have seen upon another shore, another lion give a grievous roar, and the last lion thought the first, a boar, bombast, furious. Introduction
0: If any person should have patience to read the following narrative, and can discover the author's drift, it is more than he can do himself. If it be thought exquisite nonsense, it is more than the writer dares hope and if it be pronounced simple, stupid, and unadulterated absurdity, his own private opinion will perfectly coincide with that of the public. He began to write without any fable, and before he had found any, had spun out the thread of his ideas. This tangled skin of absurdities is now exposed to criticism, from the laudable motive of showing of how much nonsense an individual may be delivered, in the short space of two afternoons, without any excuse but idleness, or any object but amusement, The prominent descriptions, which it is here attempted to ridicule, are fresh in the memory of all who have read the White Vampire*, and to those who have not, the superstition must be so familiar that it is unnecessary to make useless extracts. That the author may not, however, be misunderstood, it may be necessary to state that in the speech of the vampire, he had no design of descending to that meanest of all intellectual exercises, a travesty on authors who are justly admired but meant, if anything, to simply show how passages which were fine in their original use when garbled by the ignorant and tasteless became a melancholy rhapsody of nonsense.
1: But first on earth, as vampire sent, the corpse shall from its tomb be rent, then ghastly haunt thy native place and suck the blood of all thy race. There from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life. Yet loathe the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living course. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire. As cursing thee, thou cursing them, thy flowers are withered on the stem. But one that for thy crime must fall, the youngest, best beloved of all, shall bless thee with a father's name. That word shall wrap thy heart in flame. Yet thou must end thy task and mark, Her cheeks last tinge, her eyes last spark, And the last glassy glance must view, Which freezes over its lifeless blue. Then with unhallowed hands shall tear The tresses of her yellow hair, Of which in life a lock when shorn, Affection's fondest pledge was worn, But now is borne away by thee, Memorial of thine agony. Yet with thine own best blood shall drip thy gnashing tooth and haggard lip. Then stalking to thy sullen grave, go and with ghouls and frites rave, till these in horror shrink away from spectre more cursed than they. Byron The Black Vampire
0: Mr Anthony Gibbons was a gentleman of African extraction. His ancestors emigrated from the eastern coast of Guinea in a French ship and were sold in St. Domingo remarkably cheap. As they were reduced to mere skeletons by the yaws of the passage and all died shortly after their arrival, except one small negro of a very slender constitution and fit for no work whatever, the gentleman who purchased him charitably knocked out his brains and the body was thrown into the ocean. The tide returning in the night, it was washed upon the sands, and the moon then shining bright, the gentleman was taking a walk to enjoy the coolness of the evening. Judge of his surprise, when the little corpse got up, and complaining of a pain in its bowels, begged for some bread and butter. The planter, supposing his business to have been but half done, kicked him back in the water. The element seemed very familiar to him, and he swam back with much more grace and agility. Parting the sparkling waves of his jet-black members, polished like ebony, but reflecting no single beam of light, his complexion was a dead black, his eyes a pure white, the iris was flame-color, and the pupils of a clear, moonshiny luster, but so peculiarly constructed that, though prominent, they seemed to look into his own head. His hair was neither curled nor straight, but feathery, like the plumage of a crow. Having paddled again on shore, he came crawling crab-fashion to the feet of Mr. Persone. The latter gentleman, in a considerable alarm, not knowing whether it was Satan, Obi, or some other worthy with whom he had to deal, mustered up sufficient resolution to tie a large stone round the boy's middle. Then, with a main exertion of strength, he hurled him into the sparkling ocean. He fell where the reflection of the moon was brightest, and sunk like lead but he immediately rose again, like cork, perpendicularly with the stone under his arm, while the radiant luster of the planet retreated from his dark figure, exhibiting in its most striking contrast its utter blackness. In this predicament he came buoyant to land, surrounded, as he seemed, by a sphere of magic luster. He now walked up to the Frenchman, with his arms akimbo and looking remarkably fierce. Mr. Persone's particular hairs stood up on end. But being ashamed that a little negro of ten years old should put him in bodily fear, he knocked him down. The guinea man rose again, without bending a joint, as fast as Mr. Persone could upset him. He recovered his altitude, just like one of those small toys fabricated from pith, tipped with lead, called witches and hobgoblins by the rising generation. The planter, in utter amazement and despair, took hold of the child by both his extremities and pressing him to the earth, sat down upon him. Then, hallowing for his attendant, he ordered a tremendous fire to be kindled on the sand. This was accordingly done. The Gaul congratulated himself on his perseverance and sagacity, and as he had never heard of in animals, was confident that though the water fiend was so expert in his own element, he could not stand the fiery ordeal. The boy, meanwhile, lay perfectly passive, as if he had been a mere log. But presently, when the pile was all in a light ablaze, with a sudden expansion like that of a compressed Indian rubber, he popped Mr. Persone up into the air many yards, and he alighted head foremost into the fire, where he had intended to have dedicated the sabre-brat, with his nine lives, to Moloch. Whatever the negro was, it is notorious that Mr. Persone was no salamander. He was rescued from the pyre, which, like Hercules, he had, though unwittingly, erected for himself, looking like a squizzed cat and having apparently no life left in his body. The attention of the domestics was drawn entirely to their master, who soon betrayed signs of animation, though he exhibited a most awful spectacle. Being one continually sore and blistered, his whole body was one wound as Virgil or some other poet has hyperbolically expressed himself. Mr. Persone, when he perfectly recovered his senses, found himself in his own bed wrapped in greasy sheets and smarting as if in a cayenne bath. He called for a glass of brandy, his dear wife, Euphemia, and his infant son who had not yet been christened. His lady, with streaming eyes, presented herself before him and, after tenderly inquiring into the state of his health, told him, with a voice interrupted with sobs and hiccups, that when she went in the morning to see her baby, whom she had left in the cradle, there was nothing to be seen, but the skin, hair, and nails. She declared that there never was such another object, except, indeed, the excisation in Scudder's museum. On the receipt of this horrid intelligence, Mr. Person was seized with a violent, spasmodic affection, and shortly after expired, muttering something about sacra and the guinea negro. The amiable but unfortunate euphemia was thrown into several hysterical convulsions. As well, she might be poor woman, when her husband had been made a holocaust and served up like a broiled and peppered chicken to feed the grim maw of death. And her interesting infant, the first pledge of her pure and perfect love, had been precociously sucked like an unripe orange and nothing left but its beautiful and tender skin. The disconsolate widow caused her husband to be embalmed, and he was buried amid the lamentations and tears of all the funeral, much regretted by all who had the honour of his acquaintance, particularly by his negroes, who could not soon forget him, as he had left too many sincere marks of his regard upon their backs, to be ever obliterated from the recollections. Time, as all the Greek tragedians, Solomon, and others have remarked, is a benevolent deity. Mrs. Person's grief yielded to the soothing hand of the consoling power, and her bloom and spirits returned with more luster and elasticity than they had before exhibited, as the rose that had drooped in the fury of the passing storm erects its blushing honours and shows more beautiful and vivid tints when the squall is over. Many years after these occurrences took place, while Euphemia was in second mourning for her third husband, he was indulging in the luxury of solitary grief and reading Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, and the melancholy poems of Dr. Farmer in an Orangerie. The refreshing breezes from the ocean which now tempered the sultry heats of the declining day, the soft perfume of the opening blossoms, and the mellow tints of the evening sky shedded that holy light, so dear to sensitive hearts diffused a calm over her soul. Wrapped in the contemplation of departed days, While lost in the pensive reverie, she perceived two strangers approaching her in the extremity of the long vista of the grove. One of them was a colored gentleman of remarkable height and deep jetty blackness, a perfect model of the Congo Apollo. He was dressed in the rich garb of a Moorish prince and led by the hand of a pale European boy in an Asiatic dress, whose languid countenance, slender form and tristful gait were strongly contrasted with the poorly appearance of majestic step of his conductor. They both saluted the lovely widow, and after an interchange of compliments accepted her polite invitation to set down and take tea with her in the bower. She learned from the elder stranger that he had brought out a cargo of slaves, whom his subjects had lately taken prisoners in war, and whom he had resolved to dispose of himself, as he was desirous of seeing the world. His page, he said, was an orphan, left by a slave merchant in Africa. The manners and conversation of the prince had an irresistible charm. The regal port was manifest in his gigantic and well-proportioned frame. majesty was conspicuous on his brow, without its diadem. The turban and crescent had never graced a nobler front, but the winning condescension of his tones and language while they could not banish the feeling of the presence of royalty, removed every restraint incident to that consciousness. He criticized the works which Euphemia had been perusing with masterly precision, and displayed more knowledge than even the accomplished ideologist of Lady Morgan, with infinitely more discretion and good sense. It is remarked by the Abbey Raynal that there is a peculiar elegance and beauty in the complexion of the Africans, when the eyes and nose are accustomed to their hue and odour. This truth was realized by Euphemia as she gazed on the open visage of her illustrious guest. She thought surely that in him nature might stand up and say, This was a man. And certainly it is only the weakness and imperfection of our human senses which, penetrating no further than the surface, is forever deceived by superficial shadows. The Empyrean is always blue, whatever vapors may float in our contracted atmosphere. And if we gaze at the rows of skulls which festoon and garnish surgeons' hall, we can apply no standard to determine their relative beauty. They are all equally ugly, and the block of Helen might be mistaken for that of Medusa. Shakespeare, true to nature, had also remarked, Black men are pearls in beauteous ladies' eyes. The beauty, then, the royalty, gentility, and various accomplishments of the Bam Buck monarch made captive the too-sensible heart of the French widow. She forgot her ogles, graces, and even her loquacity, rooted to her seat and fixed in immovable contemplation of the African's face. What peculiar feature or lineament attracted her attention she knew not. His eyes, though bright, did not sparkle, and the iris, though a more vivid red than the roseate line in the rainbow, emitted no scintillations. In fact, his whole countenance seemed to look and to perambulate her own. The conversation gradually assumed a more impassioned and amorous complexion, and the little page, who though meager and emaciated, evidently showed that he was no gump for his years, taking certain broad hints, cast a mournful and intelligent look on the widow, said he would fetch a short walk in the plantation and left the Orangerie. The prince, then spreading his glittering sash upon the grass, went down on his knees upon it and broke out into the most ardent exclamations of love and admiration and professions of constant attachment. He said that the flat-nosed beauties of Zera, the scarred, squab figures of the Golden Coast, the well-proportioned Zilias, Ellipsos, and Zamas on the banks of the Niger, and even the great Hottentot Venus herself, had never for a moment made the least impression on his heart. His passion was a mystery to himself, its origin secret as the sources of the Nile, but full and impetuous as its ample channel when replenished from the celestial fountains of Abyssinia. While if Mrs. Dubois would shine upon its waves, its enlivened currents would fertilize his vast dominions in the luxuriant realms of Central Africa making them to fructify yet more abundantly with burning gold and radiant diamonds. What female heart could resist such pleadings, and the compliment implied in such a preference? When Zambo, the page, returned, the parties had agreed to be privately united on the same evening. The ceremony was accordingly performed on the spot by the family chaplain of Mrs. Dubois, not without many remonstrances on his part as to the impropriety of marrying a Negro. The prince did not see to resent the affront, which, by the by, he had no right to do, as the priest got nothing for the job. Zambo, too, was extremely restless, till Mrs. Dubois gave him some sweet meads which seemed to quiet his conscience, after which he took some stiff punch and fell asleep. About midnight the prince came to him, and, shaking him by the ears, had him rise and follow him. His bride was hanging on his arm in an enchanting dishabille and did not seem to be in perfect possession of her right senses. Zambo mournfully followed the new married pair. They went silently out the back door with cautious steps and proceeded through the orangery. No breath of wind was stirring. The moon was on the zenith, surrounded by a pale halo of ghostly luster. When they had crossed the plantation, they came to a place of sepulchre where the dark cypresses and lugubrious mahogany admitted but sparse and glimmering streaks of funereal light, which falling on the rank foliage, the white monuments, and broken ground beneath presented a thousand dusky shapes, flitting in the dim uncertainty dear to superstition. Vague terrors seized on the mind of the bride, and she began very naturally to inquire, what was the use of getting out of a comfortable bed and trailing through the heavy dew in her undress, such an unusual spot for midnight recreation. They now stood near the spot where her three husbands, several children, and the skin, hair, and nails of her first baby were deposited in a row. The foot of a tamarind lay her third son, whose Christian name was Spooner, and who died, according to the tombstone, in a fit of intoxication, aged seven years and six months. On him she had bestowed a greater share of tenderness than any of her other offspring, and his loss had caused her most affliction. The African, making observations on the grave, began to strip himself very expediously, assisted by Zembo, who seemed to recover from his blues, and by his activity and eagerness manifested his expectation of soon seeing some fine sport, Presently, the two genii, or gentlemen, or whatever they were, turned towards the east and performed certain antic prostrations, throwing handfuls of earth three times over their heads. Then returning to the tomb, they tore up the sods with ravenous fury, and soon drew out the last-mentioned son of the lady, and threw him on the grass beside the grave. Zembo fell as fiercely upon the corpse as a hungry dog upon his dinner, but was arrested by the African who lent him a severe box on the ear which sent him blubbering to a corner of the cemetery. What added both to the mother's horrors and admiration was that the body of her child was perfectly fresh, and the olfactory nerves experienced no unsavory sensation from its proximity, while its cheeks were diffused with so deep a tinge of scarlet that they shone like ruddy fireballs in the darkness of the spot. Her husband drew a golden goblet from beneath a large stone. Then, bending over the corpse, he scooped out the heart. With his long and polished nails, and having pressed the blood into the chalice, mingled with it some dark particles gathered from the newly turned-up earth, from the pure and scanty lymph, which gushed nearby and flickered like a streak of quick silvery light in the moonbeam, he added a third ingredient to the potion. Then, seizing his passive and trembling spouse by the throat and presenting the unnatural mixture to her lips, He cried in a hollow voice, whose very infliction thrilled each fiber of its victim.
1: Swear, or if that is against your principles, affirm by this dirty blood and bloody dirt, by this watery blood and bloody water, by this watery dirt and dirty water, that you will never disclose in any manner aught of what you have seen and shall see this night. Call them all to witness your wish that in the moment when you even conceive the thought of perjury, your bowels may burst out and your bones rot, swear, and drink. The affrighted
0: woman murmured, as articulately as the iron grip of the monster would suffer her, that she was not thirsty, and had not breath enough to
1: aspirate such a terrible conjuration. No trifling, roared the fiend. You have not a moment to deliberate but his bellowing
0: and threats were vain, and he found to his mortification that he had gotten the wrong sow by the ear, or rather by the throat. She stuttered out in the most pitiful accents, which would have softened any heart, but a vampire has none. That though she was by no means partial to the delectable confectionery of the pharmacopoeia, calomel and jalap, impacucuna and rhubarb and tartar emetic, she would rather take them all, collectively and individually, than the unchristian decoction he held against her teeth. Foaming with madness till the white slaver flowed down his sable limbs, the African hurled Mrs. Personne, Dubois, etc., etc., on the grave of her first husband, and stamping violently on the earth it seemed to heave as with the throes of an earthquake. Immediately the tumuli yawned, the ponderous stones and slabs were shaken from their ancient sockets, And the ghastly dead in uncouth attitudes crawled from their nooks, with their hair curling in torturous and serpent twinings, and their eyeballs of fire bursting from their heads. While, as they extended their withered arms and tapering fingers, furnished with bloodhound claws, their gory shrouds fell in wild drapery around them, transiently revealing their forms. Bloated, as if to bursting, and often incarnadined with clotted blood, yet warm and dripping. The lady, as those who have been in similar predicaments may suppose, soon lost her recollection. Not, however, before she had seen Zembo busily employed in tearing up the grave of her first husband. She saw herself surrounded by the specters and lost all consciousness. When reason and sense returned, she found herself in the same place and it was also the midnight hour. She was laying by the grave of Mr. Persone, and her breast was stained with blood. A wide wound appeared to have been inflicted there, but was now cicatrized. Imagine, if you can, her surprise, when by a certain carnivorous craving in her maw, by putting this and that together, she found she was a vampire, and gathered from her indistinct reminiscences of the preceding night that she had been then sucked and that it was now her turn to eject the peaceful tenants of the grave. With this delightful prospect of immortality before her, she began to examine the graves, or subject to satisfy her furious appetite. When she had selected one to her mind, a new marvel arrested her attention. Her first husband got up out of his coffin, and with all the grace so natural to his countrymen, made her low bow in the last fashion, and opened his arms to receive her. What were the emotions of this fond couple, when after a lingering separation for sixteen years, they again embraced each other, with the ardor of an affection equal to their earliest transports, and which their long divorce seemed only to increase, tenderly inquiring into the state of each other's health and the accidents which had befallen them during this disjunction? They forgot even their hunger and thirst, and sitting down on a tombstone made a thousand inquiries which, however, they related to family concerns might not be as interesting to the reader as they were to the parties concerned. Mr. Person, however, looked rather glum when he learned that his lady had been thrice married since his decease. But she assured him that she would never more tolerate the addresses of another suitor. And as for the two husbands, they were rotten enough by this time. She was confident they had not attended the vampire ball on the preceding night. As for her sable spouse, she trusted that he would never again appear to interrupt their happiness. But while she was expressing this hope, the gentleman in question, like his relation below, according to the old proverb, came upon the ground, with Zembo, Mr. Persone, having neither sword nor pistols at hand, armed himself with a gigantic thigh bone, and warned the black prince to stand upon his guard as he meant to punish him severely. But Zambo, rushing between the parties, raised his hands in a supplicating posture, while the generous monarch, making a salam to his antagonist, begged him keep himself quiet and look behind him. They both turned round on this intimation when, to the utter confusion of the lady, her second and third husbands, Messieurs Marcand and Dubois, arose from the graves, where they had been lovingly deposited by the side of each other. They both advanced to salute their wife but Mr. Person, brandishing his thigh bone, warned them to stand off, and he had the first title to the lady. Much confusion would have ensued had not the African prince interfered. He told the gentleman that so delicate a point could only be settled in an honourable way, and proposed that Mr. Marcand and Mr. Dubois should first settle their difference in a personal encounter, after which Mr. Person might give the survivor gentlemanly satisfaction. To this all parties assented, as they were already stripped, the combatants shook hands to show their mutual goodwill, and proceeded to action without further ceremony. Mr. Dubois soon brought claret from Mr. Marcand, who, in returning the compliment, fibbed Mr. Dubois so severely in the bowels that he lost his wind, and, gasping for breath, smote the air on all sides, without any of his blows telling. He came to the ground and his bones rattled as he fell, but soon recovering his breath he made a desperate attack on Mr. Marcon's sconce and favoured him with so terrible a facer under the gills that he fell incontinently like a bull smitten in his front, but entangling his own heels with those of Mr. Dubois they both came simultaneously to the ground, striking their heads against different tombstones and knocking out their own brains. They rose again, refreshed like the giant of old, by their grappling with the earth, and all the better for the loss of their wits, which indeed was a mere trifle. But the African, who had no time to see more sport, fixed them to the sod by his superior strength, and Zambo dexterously pinned them fast by driving stakes through their hearts with a large sledgehammer, which he carried about his person for such emergencies. During the operation, their roaring surpassed that which is performed by the lioness, when bereft of her whelps, but as soon as they were fairly nailed to the counter, they lay motionless and breathless, a horrible pair of spectacles of sin and misery. The African assured the lady that she never need fear their second resurrection, and Mr. Persone politely offered to settle their controversy in any mode most agreeable to the prince. Either to box with him on the spot or appoint a meeting in the future with pistols, rifles, small or broadsword, or else they might toss up, who should set fire to a barrel of gunpowder? The prince said that quarreling was all nonsense and offered his hand, but Mr. Persone refused, saying, Don't be too familiar, Blackie, and renewing his threats of cracking him over the noodle with the thigh bone. The generous monarch pocketed the
1: affront. You have been he said, sufficiently rewarded for the cruelties you practiced upon my person several years ago. I forgive you, my dear sir, what you performed and intended to perform on me. Here is your son who has grown considerably as you may observe, and I assure you that his education has not been neglected. To his exertions last night, you are indebted for your revivification. And as you may remember, you were embalmed. You have kept quite sweet and fresh ever since your interment. Amiable and virtuous vampires. May you long enjoy that tranquility and contentment which your merit and accomplishments so eminently deserve. A vessel lies in the port, ready to sail for Europe in an hour. The island is no longer a place for you. Here is money to pay your passages, and all I have to say is that the sooner you're off, the better. Farewell, so saying, he
0: departed, without waiting for the acknowledgments of the party. Mr. Persone and his lady, whom we shall again call by their first marriage name, did not exactly comprehend what their dingy benefactor meant by bidding them take French leave of the island, like pickpockets and outlaws. But, as they were wondering at their own existence, like Adam and Eve, their first day of their creation, and as they had reason to believe the prince a potent magician, who could rouse the dead from their sermons and turn the planets from their courses, for these reasons they concluded to follow his bidding without any impertinent scruples. But as the keen edge of their hunger had been whetted by delay, they would fain have taken supper, and digested a little something wherewithal to strengthen them before they set out. Zembo, who had filled his own bread-basket very lately, and was in no such urgent necessity, protested with all the vehemence which filial reverence would permit against the unseasonable gratification of their unnatural craving, and recited with just emphasis and good discretion an extract from Counsellor Phillips' harangue about the cannibal appetite of his rejected altar, which his parents did not understand and, of course, thought very sublime. But even this masterpiece of mystical eloquence would have been delivered in vain had not the boy given other reasons of such cogency that they licked their lips, cast a longing, lingered look at the graveyard and followed him without more opposition. They prosecuted their nocturnal march through closely woven and solemn groves until they descended into a profound valley where the light of the pale planet of magic adoration streamed and quivered on serried files of bright armory the leader of the band seemed to have expected their arrival, and mutual tokens of recognition passed between him and Zembo. The whole company then set forward their array in silence. No cymbal clashed, no clarion rang, still were the pipe and drum. Save heavy tread and armor's clang, the sullen march was dumb. By continual descent they seemed to have penetrated the bowels of a cavern whose ramifications ran under the sea as they heard a murmuring roar as of the ocean above their heads. The party, by the instructions of Zembo, dispersed themselves in different directions, until they had enclosed the interior of the rock where its largest chamber was, to speak categoristically so artfully concealed by nature, that no one, not instructed by an adept in its subterranean topography, could ever have detected the secret of its existence. It had been in former days a place of deposit and asylum for the buccaneers, and its situation had been since known only to the professors of the Obia art who held here their midnight orgies. Mr. and Mrs. Persone, guided by their son, were placed in a situation where, through the crevices of the inner partition of the rock, they could observe what was passing in the interior. It seemed at first a vast hall of Arabian romance, supported by immense shafts and studded with precious stones, so various and beautiful were the hues which the different spars assumed in the light of a hundred torches blazing in every quarter and illuminating the farthest recesses of the cave. The walls were decorated with other appendages, which added to the mystery, if not to the embellishment of the scene being irregularly stained with blood, decorated with rude tapestry of many-colored plumage, and stuccoed with the beaks of parrots, the teeth of dogs and alligators, bones of cats, broken glass and eggshells, plastered with a composition of rum and grave dirt, the implements of negro witchcraft. At one extremity of the extensive apartment, on a kind of natural throne, sat several black moors in sumptuous moorish apparel whom by their swollen forms and remarkable eyes Mrs. Persone knew to be ghouls, and among whom she recognized her late husband. The whole range of this vast amphitheater sweeping from before the throne was occupied by slaves, rudely attired and imperfectly armed with clubs and missiles. A decent platoon of blackguards were posted before the vampire monarchs, and in the center a band of musicians performed an exquisite symphony The soft strains of the merry wang, the lively notes of the dundo, and the martial accompaniment of the gumbe, made with their united noises a discordant harmony, whose powers the lyre of Orpheus could not equal, and which would certainly be enough to frighten all the hosts of pandemonium. The oratio being finished, the African prince arose, and making an obeisance to the company, cleared his throat and began to address them as follows. Gentlemen. And vampires. But the vampires, expressing a resentment against this breach of etiquette, he corrected himself. Vampires and gentlemen. But the Negroes were no more willing to come last than the vampires, and a loud growl accompanied by a slight hiss again interrupted the orator. He was not, however, disconcerted, but like Mr. Burke thundered out an iteration of the offensive sentence. Yes, said he. I repeat it, vampires and gentlemen, shall not the immortal precede the mortal? Shall not those whose diet surpasses the nectar and ambrosia of celestials precede the ephemeral race, who fatten on the unclean juice of brutes, the rank essence of esculent productions, or the nauseous liquor of the distillery? Applause. Hear, hear, and see, boy, from the vampires, groans from the negroes. Gentlemen of color, I appeal to yourselves. Shall not the descendants of the gods be named before the offspring of the earth-born image, whom Titan impregnated with celestial fire? For Prometheus was the first vampire. You must all know, as you have undoubtedly read Ascleas, that the vulture who preyed on his liver was neither fish, flesh, nor fowl. He is called a dog, which makes him a quadruped. He is represented as ipu, creeping, which proves him an insect, and is said to have wings, which shows that he was a bird. Thou from this amphibious monster have descended the crows, the jackals, and the bloodhounds, the pirate bat of Madagascar, and the man-killing ivunches of Chile, the sharks, the crocodiles, the krakens, the horse-leeches, the cape-cod sea-serpents, the mermaids, the incubi, and the succubi, loud cheering from the vampires. From Titan himself descended the Cyclopes, and all other ancient and modern anthropophagi, and in lineal descent the Moko tribe of our own Ibos, to whom I have honor of being related. Those of you, too, are his posterity, who after your deaths return to your native land, the true Elysium where the balmy bowel of the cocoa, the soft bloom of the anana, and the coal-black beauties of the clime of love, shall forever reward your fortitude and steep in forgetfulness the memory of your wrongs. Hear, hear from the Negroes. But none of these genera or species of our order must longer engage your dignified and charitable attention. I come to ourselves, full-blooded, unadulterated, immortal bloodsuckers, To ourselves, whether ghouls or afrits, or vampires, rucolochas, vordolachos, or brocolocas. To ourselves, the terror of the living and of the dead, and the participants of the nature of both. To ourselves, the emblems at once of corruption and of vitality, blotted from the records of existence and replenished to repletion with circulating life. Abandoned by the quick and unrecognized by the dead, at once relics and relics, rocked on the basis of our own eternities, the chronicles of what was, the solemn and sublime mementos of what must be. Unqualified approbation from both sides of the house. The estate of vampirism is a tale and may be docked in two different ways. The first mode is the sanguinary practice of perforating the subject with a stake. This is final. The other is produced by the gentler operation of the narcotic potion you behold in this phial, by whose lenient and opiate influence the individual is restored to the plight in which he was previous to his death or his becoming a vampire, and belongs to the obia mysteries. But to come to the object of our present meeting, sublime and soul-elevating theme, the emancipation of the Negroes, the consecration of the soil of St. Domingo to the manes of murdered patriots in all ages. No matter whether the bill of sale was scrawled in French or in English, no matter whether we were taken prisoners in a battle between the Leofaris and the Jackoffs or in a skirmish between the Sambos and the Sawpits, no matter whether we were bought for calico and cotton or for gunpowder or for shot, No matter whether we were transported in chains or in ropes, in a brig or a schooner, seventy-four. The first moment we came ashore on St. Domingo, our souls shall swell like a sponge in the liquid element. Our bodies shall burst from their fetters, glorious as a curculo from its shell. Our minds shall soar like the car of the aeronaut when its ligaments are cut. In a word, O my brethren, we shall be free. Our fetters discandied and our chains dissolved, we shall stand liberated, redeemed, emancipated, and disenthralled by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation, unparalleled bursts of unprecedented applause. Such was the report of this oration taken down in shorthand by Zambo, of whose extraordinary sagacity so many proofs have been exhibited, and who was never unprovided with materials for any emergency. The fiery oratory of the prince communicated such inspiration to the auditors that the whole mass of their thick blood leaped up with the quickening pulse of anticipated freedom. They danced and sung with violent gesticulations like perfect corribantes. But unfortunately, their pyrex were interrupted by the glittering bayonets of the soldiery who poured in upon them from every quarter and hemmed them in with a bristling chevaux de frise of steel. The vampires, surprising but undaunted, unsheathed their sabers and drew up in a gallant style, as if determined to die game, being indeed assured that, like so many phoenixes, they would rise from their own ashes as often as they might be cut down. A desperate conflict ensued, during which Mrs. Persone observed the file, mentioned by the prince lying on the ground, and very thoughtfully put it in her ridicule Slaves, seeing how the business was likely to terminate, prudently sneaked off, while the attention of the military was occupied by the vampires. The former were violently exasperated to find all their labor so unprofitable, since while they themselves were wounded by every blow of their opponents, the latter, like so many ninipins, was set up, as fast as they were bowled down bending to the storm like masts on a tempestuous ocean and rising again upon the billow in perpendicular triumph. But, being instructed by Zembo, the soldiers pinioned them as fast as they fell and prevented their rising by sitting in great numbers on their bodies, though the task was somewhat like that of detaining Quicksilver beneath the fingers. The prince, however, still fought desperately. Brandishing a huge scimitar in either hand, he swayed his arms like the sails of a windmill. While limbs, heads, and bodies flew about him, curvetting and dancing in the air, as when the ingenious Mr. Haffy pulls to pieces a coach or an old woman, children, chickens, friars, and petticoats dance about in wild confusion, till the artist's hand again brings order out of chaos, or as when the renowned knight of the bedchamber, whose name eternal vases shall record saw the ungenerous character on the wall, wielding a ponderous jug, he smote the innocent tables, chairs, and bedposts, and strode victorious over the gory field. So fought the prince, till being neatly pricked in the spine, unexpectedly he soused, as Johannes Porco Latinus remarks, in Principia Fundamentalia, and was immediately set upon by a host. So, when a Gotulian lion is pierced by the light bamboo overpowered by the hunters, he struggles in his thrall like an Enceladus under Etna and dies at last with heart-wrung tears of anguish and reverberating roars of the hatred. Stakes were immediately procured, and the whole internal fraternity securely disposed of as their compeers described by Homer with burning chains fixed to the brazen floors and locked by hell's inexorable doors. With their bellowings, the vast chambers of the subterranean rung like the caverns of Delphos, when the inflammable air was fired by the crafty priests. The inhabitants of the island started up from their slumbers in shuddering terror and believed that an earthquake was rumbling beneath their feet. Mr. and Mrs. Persone and Zambo lost no time in trying the effects of the African stolen prescription. Being thrown into a tranquil slumber, they were conveyed to their plantation and awoke the next morning perfectly well, excepting slight colds in the head. Mr. Persone, having been in the status quo for sixteen years, was now much younger than his lady, a circumstance for which she was not at all sorry, and which he himself declared by no means displeased him. The remainder of their life was serene as a tropic night illumined by the mild effulgence of domestic love, fanned by the soft aspirations of peaceful bosoms, and enlivened by the firefly scintillations of rapture. Zambo, to whose taste and ingenuity they were indebted for their happiness, and who was baptized with the Christian name of Barabbas, after an uncle of his mother's, recorded what the reader has perused. One only circumstance, like one of those claps of thunder frequently heard in the unclouded sky passed over the tranquility of their bosoms. Mrs. Person's fourth husband's child was a mulatto and of vampirish propensities, of which his mother and Mr. Persone were never able entirely to cure him, having used up all the Africans' preparation. The intelligent reader, if any there such be, will remember that this narrative commenced with the name of Mr. Anthony Gibbons, of whom nothing has since been said, and whose adventures, to use a forum trope, must remain buried in the bowels of futurity until a more convenient opportunity. He is a lineal descendant from the last-mentioned mulatto, and the manuscript, which is now given to the public, was transmitted to him from his ancestors. He is a resident in Essex County, New Jersey, and candor requires us to state that he is no relation to his celebrated namesake at Elizabethtown, as it is notorious to all who have had the pleasure of witnessing the size of the latter gentleman's waist, that he has too much bowels for so diabolical a profession. And it is to be hoped in charity that though he is such a delicate morsel, when he is laid in the sepulchre of his father's he may not prove a tidbit to glut the thirst of a vampire. Moral. In this happy land of liberty and equality, we are free from all traditional superstitions, whether political, religious, or otherwise. Fiction has no materials for machinery, romance no horrors for a tale of mystery. Yet, in a figurative sense, and in the moral world, our climate is perhaps more prolific than any other, in enchanters, vampires, and the whole infernal brood of sorcery and witchcraft. The accomplished dandy, who in maintaining his horses, his tailor, etc., absorbs in the forced and unnatural excitement of his senseless orgies the lifeblood of that wealth which his prudent sire had accumulated by a long devotion to the counter. What is he but a vampire, a fraudulent trafficker in stock and merchandise, who, having sucked the whole substance of a hundred honest men, is consigned for a few weeks to the sepulchre of the jail, and then by the potent magic of an insolvent law stalks forth, triumphant with bloated villainy, more related in his shameless resurrection to renew his career of iniquity and of disgrace. What is he but a vampire? The corrupted and senseless clerk, who, being placed near the vitals of a moneyed institution, himself exhausted to feed the appetite of sharpers, drains in his turn the coffers he was appointed to guard. Is he not, I appeal to the stockholders, is he not a vampire? Brokers, county bank directors, and their disciples, all whose hunger and thirst for money, unsatisfied with the tardy progression of honest industry by creating fictitious and delusive credit, has preyed on the heart and liver of public confidence and poisoned the currents of public morals. Are they not all vampires? The whole tribe of plagiarists under every denomination, the critic, who by eviscerating authors and stuffing his own meager show of learning with the pilfered entrails ekes out his periodical fulmination against public taste. A forum orator who without compunction barbarously extensates Burke and Kuran and Phillips, a second handed lawyer, scholar, theologue, who quote from quotations and steal stolen property, the divine who preaches Tillotson And Top Lady, what are they all but vampires? The empiric who fills his own stomach while he empties his shop into the bowels of the hypochondriac. The Bibliopolist, who guts the fobs of the whole reading community by ascribing to Lord Byron works which the author never saw. The philanthropic contractor for the army, who charges more for lime and horse beef than his quantum Marriott for the best provisions. Who sets up his carriage and his palace by blistering the mouths and destroying the intestines of thousands? What are these but vampires, the professors and disciples of Surgeons' Hall, who, when a fine, fat course is rolled out of the resurrectionist budget, set up a howl of horrible transport like the anthropophagus caribs in Robinson Crusoe, glut their gloating eyes with the pingidity and unctuousness of the subject and wet their blades like Shylock, impatient to attack the ilia. What are they but vampires. And I, who, as Johnson said of a hypochondriac lady, have spun this discourse out of my own bowels and made as free with those of others. I am a
1: vampire. The End